here and there where I have a lot to say about them and then there will be some that, you know, longer stretches of time where I just don't have a whole lot. But there's some flexibility here. If any, As we're reading, if something stands out to someone, you know, that they want to share, by all means, go ahead because it may be something that I haven't thought of or don't have in my notes. So, um, with that said, we started chapter 25 but didn't quite finish it. So we'll do half of 25, and then I'm going to try to get us through all of 26 today. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So Isaiah 25, this is, as we discussed last week, this is sort of the, uh, the end or the answer to this series of visions that Isaiah, ha that Isaiah has about the end of the world, the edge of the map, the end of time. You know, these, these are the, sort of the same thing. Um, he talks about um, the, the southernmost end of the map. He talks about the northern moist, no, northernmost point of the map. And in doing so, he's talking about like the apocalypse and the end of time. Then he starts talking about the westernmost point on the map. And then he says, and I'll go back here, um, from the ends of the earth. This was back in chapter 24 sort of this summary statement, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Now we're still sort of on that train, this sort of this sort of statement about a summary about the ends of the earth. Now it's fitting that we're talking about this on this particular day of all days, the ends of the earth, glorifying God, right? This is what Pentecost is all about. So, here is the vision. On this mountain, I'm going to start here in verse 6, even though we did cover that last week. I'll start there, and that will sort of get our momentum going. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Note that, all peoples. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. If the sign of Eliakim wasn't clear enough, I think he's being pretty clear here. This is a promise of resurrection. Which, by the way, did not happen during Isaiah's lifetime. He did not see this happen. This is, this, is, this is about the Son of Man in resurrected glory. Yes. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The Orthodox, I think I mentioned this at the end of last week, the Orthodox view this verse as being fulfilled in John chapter 20 when Christ in his resurrected glory shows himself to Thomas and Thomas says behold my Lord and my God right so it will be said on that day what day well the day of resurrection the day when death is swallowed up forever that God's people will say this is our God for him that he might save us right so in John we have a very a very clear and undeniable statement of Christ's deity, right? And I was talking with a Jehovah's Witness one time about uh, various things, and uh, I, I used I used this verse. This verse came up, and because as as you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ, but they use our same New Testament. Now they have changed some things. They there some of their the proof text that they have found, they've altered, but they can't get rid of all of them because there's just so many of them, right? And so I mentioned this one because they hadn't taken this one out. This one's still in the Bible, right? And so I said, why did Christ 
not strike Thomas dead for blasphemy there on the spot. Because Thomas was saying the truth. My Lord and my God, that's who Christ is. She said, well, let me let me do some research and I'll come back and we'll talk more about it. And I never saw her again. So. Yeah. All right. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place and as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. So the Orthodox, again, as I said, see this passage as being about the Christ event, the death and resurrection of Christ. So for them, this is a continuation of that same thing. It's a little less obvious in this verse, but they say, well, it's talking about hands being spread out. Now, in the... It's, it's a little unclear in this Hebrew version, but in the, in, the, in the Greek version, the Septuagint, which is what the Orthodox use, it's very clear that it's God who's spreading out his arms. God will spread out his arms. And so they say, well, this is obviously about Christ on the cross. This is Christ being revealed to the whole world, you know, from, in this eternal moment. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. Any Anything y'all want to talk about about chapter 25 before we move on to the next chapter? Is there a verse that says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yeah. Isaiah yeah, it, that's it. Yeah, we got a long way to go, but we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. That's the famous passage about the suffering servant. Yes. Surely he carried our iniquities and all of that. Yeah. Verse verse 8 where it talks about the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's the same message as Revelation 20. Yes, absolutely. That the, uh, you know, the establishment of the kingdom will wipe away every tear. Mm-hmm. And death will be no more. You know that Isaiah 53 I mentioned this before, but some of the Jewish evangelists in Israel they just encourage these Jews just to read their own Bible. Some of them read Isaiah 53 and say, no, they've never read it before. And say, how did yeah. Jesus get into my Bible? I mean, they see exactly what it's talking about. Yeah. Well, it's the same with, like we were talking about before, with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. They'll just look at their own Bible. They'll just look at it. Now they have a tampered Bible. They do. I mean, it's, it's but but they can't take it all out. But <laughs> the, <laughs> old, the Old Testament, you know. <laughs> One would think. Um, Anything else? As we've said before many times, these chapter divisions are kind of arbitrary. What continues is just its just the next sentence in this long, grand vision. So it's kind of weird to even have a break here. But here we go. In that day, as he's been saying, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation may keep that keeps faith may enter in. Does that sound familiar? Sound like a, a certain psalm? Yeah. Um, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Um, so one thing that stood out to me as I was reading this was where it's talking about the city it says in verse 1 we have a strong city and then later in verse 5 it's it's talking about free is humbled, the lofty city the city of the proud so you have this contrast it's the city of heaven, the city of righteousness contrasted with the city of the world we talked a lot last week about what I, what I call the great inversion. We talked a lot about that and about how 
in the in the story and drama of what God is doing, he takes these things that start out as negative and then he flips them on their head. We talked about the symbolism of wine and how throughout scripture, wine is primarily a negative symbol. It's warned about consistently, its first uses in the Bible are negative, and then and then Christ flips it on its head. Right, starting with the wedding of Cana and then the Eucharist, and then it just goes on from there. Um, and it becomes a symbol of Christ's presence to his people. And there's still a negative aspect because it's a symbol of judgment at the end of time, right? But for God's people, it's 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 the great inversion. So I see that here with this with the city. You know, the cities at the start of the Bible are all negative. It's the descendants of Cain who build cities, not the descendants of Seth. It's it's negative. Tubal Cain is building cities. Nimrod is a man of cities. It's Babylon. It's the settled inhabitants who are who are actually going against the command to scatter across the world. Right to to settle in a city is actually against, especially at the beginning when there's not that many people. They're supposed to spread out. They're supposed to fill up the world. They're not supposed to gather and um, use all their strength to amass power and sort of concentrate themselves. That's what happens in Babel. So that's the opposite of what God has in mind for humanity until we get to the great inversion. And in Revelation, it describes the new heavens and the new earth, and it says that it's a city. But it's, it's a city that covers the entire world. The dimensions of the city in Revelation are the size of the known world at that time. So in John's vision, the city is a giant, it's a giant cube, it's a giant holy of holies that covers the whole earth. That's the great inversion. Um, so let's talk about that. Anybody have any thoughts? There's a great song that I sang years ago, O City, City of God. Yeah. Great things are young. Glorious things are, are, are happening to but if you look at look at our own country, you know, where's the worst where are the worst places to be? In the cities? In the cities. Let's <laughs> all go to San Francisco. <laughs> so we are called aliens and strangers. Right? Yes. That's not about whether we should live in physical cities or not. It's about how we as the church operate. Right? There's a reason why um, church and state are supposed to be separate, right? It's because we are in this world but not of this world, right? So when we talk about the city of God, it's a it's a it's a heavenly it's a heavenly reality, right? And it's a city it's that's made, made up of hands. saints, past, present, and future. Yeah. It's the communion of the saints yes. that we talk about in the creeds. That's the city of God. So it's not something that you can point to. It's not Rome. It's not. It's not Moscow. It's not Istanbul. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Yeah. It's a city not made by hands. Eighty Gum says, "For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God." Yeah. So it's that city. Can't wait for that city, man. Any possible? I used to have some, but they went away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, have so, they have so much gold there, it's dust. I know the feelings. <laughs> well, God, God does choose Jerusalem. Yes. Uh, but that's one of those, one of many times when there's a prophecy, and then there's a fulfillment in type, and then we still wait the, the absolute fulfillment. Well, so many times in these prophets, and Isaiah's one of them, and he's just one, there are many... Jerusalem is Jerusalem turns herself into the prostitute city. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's not. It's, it's still negative. It's still negative. In Revelation, he addresses Jerusalem as Sodom. That's right. Yeah. But Jesus, Jesus enters the city and just wails for it, grieves over. Yes. Yes. And then the great inversion happens. Yeah. All right, so I, I think this is this is important for us to to sort of sit here and talk about this because for, uh, for me personally, this has been 
a huge thing to notice over and over in Scripture, you know, this the great inversion of Christ taking these symbols and flipping them on their head, mm. right, and, and turning reality inside out. Um, many of you remember Kirby, he used to describe it as a sock, you know, to pull inside out. But actually, the sock was inside out. Yeah. He, pulled, he makes it right <laughs> side out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's inside yeah. out now. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's, it's yeah. currently inside yeah. out. Christ, yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. Christ yeah. is fixing it. Yeah. All right, so. Well, look, I mean, think, think about it, just came to mind, you know, if you've heard it said, Hate your enemies and love your friends. Jesus said, but love your enemies. Yeah. He flips it on his head. No. This is this is such a a how do I say this? This is such a huge part of what Christianity is that we don't even realize it most of the time when it's happening. Because what we come to know as normal, like we're we're living on the we're living in a now and not yet kind of reality, right? So some of what we experience, we're starting to experience heaven on earth, but not fully, right? So there are things in our life that already have experienced this great inversion, and there are things that we're still waiting to be inverted, right? And so one example that came to mind this week um, that just kind of blew my mind the longer I thought about it is just the symbol of the cross, the cross is part of that great inversion. The cross was the cross was a pagan symbol. The cross as as a as a picture or as a symbol didn't start with Christianity. People were being crucified long before Christ was crucified. And the symbol of the cross existed in other cultures too, not just Roman cultures. You know the Celts had Celtic crosses before Christianity showed up. Yeah. They, they saw the Celtic cross and they said, let me tell you what this is really about. The swastika. I told you I'd bring up Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The swastika was a cross. It was a cross that was co-opted. Right? And it was, a, it was a version of the cross that existed before Christianity. It was this primordial symbol. Came, yeah, in Buddhism, in, in uh, Africa, but, the cross existed in Africa. Yeah. To your point, though, Hitler flipped it, so the angles are different. The angles are yeah. Oh yeah, it's messed up. It's corrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my point is that the, my point is that crosses as symbols existed all over the world. We have all of these cultures that are that are longing for this stuff to be revealed to them, right? And so then when the gospel goes out to the world, at Pentecost, shall we say, when the gospel goes out to the world, it takes these things and flips them and says, let me tell you what this is really about. It's like Paul, when he sees the, uh, the statue, and he says, let me tell you what this statue, you built the statue and you don't know what it's about. Let me, let me explain this to you. To the unknown God. Yeah. Because now we're almost seeing an, an, another inversion of the cross again where it becomes meaningless. Everybody has one around their neck. Yeah. So it means nothing to people. It's just, it's just jewelry. So it's jewelry. I have um, I have a uh, a picture that I want to pass around about the the cross as being present in all of these different cultures. But before I do, I want to set up the story so you see the significance of this picture when I when I pass it around. So in uh, in Lithuania, which is on the fluctuating border between west and east, right? It's this constant, it's like the tide moving back and forth between west and east, and that's where Lithuania is. There is a place um, called the Hill of Crosses. Has anybody heard of this before? No. All right, the Hill of Crosses. Uh, no one knows exactly when it started. They think it probably started in the 1830s. Yeah. They think it probably started in the 1830s, but no one knows for sure. It just kind of spontaneously happened. They think it might have started as a memorial, but again, no one knows for sure. People just started planting crosses on this hill. All right, in the 60s, the, Soviet, the Soviets burned it down, and it came back. And then they did it again, and it came back again. They've destroyed this place four times, and four times this hill has has grown crosses over and over again. It's a pilgrimage site where people 
people come from all over the world and bring their crosses. And so what you have now is this picture of every nation, tongue, and tribe, and all of these different kinds of crosses. You've got Ethiopian crosses, you have Byzantine crosses, you have rosaries, you have all of these different kinds of crosses. So I've got, these pictures are different, so I'm going to pass one one way and one the other way and kind of move them around because they're not the same picture. Hundreds of thousands of these crosses. Yeah, I've seen a photograph of this before. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's overwhelming. Those are uh, not small crosses either. <laughs> no, no. It's just a sea of crosses. And to me, this is a this is an illustration. This is every nation, tongue, and tribe. See, when Christianity comes in, it doesn't destroy a culture, it redeems it. Right? That's what Christianity has always been about. And it cannot right. be destroyed. And it cannot be destroyed, yeah. This, this, this looks somewhat like the sculpture in, um, in uh, I'm trying to say, not humble, but uh, uh, what's the town up here? <laughs> Brownville. Ever seen the structure and the, the oh, artwork? Oh, it looks a little yeah. bit like that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's amazing. So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and uh, I think Greg and I have talked some about this here and there, about the, the hiddenness of God, right? Now, He does reveal Himself. God does reveal Himself. But we also have to seek Him. Yeah. Um, when Christ shows up in His resurrected glory, he does resurrect in a physical body. This is true. You can touch him. He can eat. He does eat. People do touch him. But there's also a, a mysterious nature to these appearances of Christ. It's different. 
it's first of all, not everybody who sees him even recognizes him. Secondly, he doesn't reveal himself to very many people. It's uh, it's the glory of God to conceal the matter, and the glory of kings to seek it out. Right, and this is played out in the resurrection of Christ. We see this played out. Christ uh, intentionally conceals himself and reveals himself to only a, a very few. Right now, if you seek him, you will find him. Mm-hmm. But you have to seek him. Yes. You have to seek him, and I think that's what this verse is talking about. Jeremiah twenty-nine. Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. You search for me with all your heart. Yeah, well, a knock and the door will be open to you, but you have to knock. You have to knock. Um, So Augustine wrote about this verse. In the resurrection itself, it is not easy to see God, except for those who are clean of heart. Um, Gregory the Great also talks about it. The, The glory of Christ is something hidden, right? You talked about this in your sermon with the hiding of the cloud. Christ goes up. This is his moment Right where he's going to be shown to be exalted over all of all of creation, and a cloud hides him. He's concealed in the cloud. Right, that's just how this works. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and the glory of kings to seek it out. Any thoughts on that before we move on? Well, I, I had an experience at Mount Rainier National Park a few years yeah. ago. Uh, I was driving up toward it through Oregon, and I could see it. You know, just beautiful set against the, the horizon. And then the next day I got there and it was covered with a cloud. <laughs> I could not see, you know, like 20 feet in front of me. Yeah. And it, it uh, uh, occurred to me this is just typical mount, mountain conditions. Yeah. Uh, clouds gather around mountains. And so, you know, in this uh, um, event of the ascension, God is simply using nature again, once again, He is using nature as a testimony to something spiritual. Yes. So every time you see a cloud covered mountain, you think, you know, this speaks of the glory of Christ veiled for now. Yes. Um, that's a great point, and, and that happens all the time. Nature is constantly use, doing this drama over and over. It's a constant drama of, of uh, the work of God displayed in creation. We actually saw this back in verse 9. I forgot to mention it, but we actually saw this. Um, my soul yearns for you in the night. Right? The drama of night and day. Right? This is something that's so normal to our experience we don't even notice it, but it's the drama of death and resurrection. It's the drama of longing and fulfillment. In the night, my soul yearns for you. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. And so when the church builds its traditions and its liturgies and all of this stuff, it, it, it uses these tools that everybody has access to. So you have night vigils, right? night prayer vigils. And what that does is it sets the stage for, for your heart, right? To be able to, to pray these prayers. These are the prayers that are prayed during these night vigils. Has anybody ever experienced one of these before? Anybody ever been to a night vigil? Yeah, it's it's quite an experience, right? And it's a it's a different it's a different kind of experience than praying at noon time, right? Well, that's because this drama is built into the rhythm of creation. So yeah, and and if to to invoke Wednesday night lessons again, if indeed the earth shifted on its axis and seasons were invented during the flood and the weather changed all this stuff that we're talking about you know the clouds on the mountains Easter you know the, uh, the Lenten spring season life coming out of death it was all put in place right then and it was for a purpose uh, you know for God to have this natural uh, testimony of Christ and in the work of the cross, you know, and Paul in Romans says Gentiles really don't have any excuse because they can see the testimony in nature. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the the fathers 
make a big deal about this. Um, several of them in particular. There's a guy called, what's his name, the Venerable Bede? The Venerable Bede, what a name. <laughs> Alright, so his great work and his contribution to the church is largely looking at nature and, and allegorizing it for everyone to see so that they go out and they sit in nature and they can contemplate the things of God by what they experience, right? So Bede will say things like, well, the relationship between the sun and the moon is like the relationship between Christ and his church, right? And you think about that for, you know, all night long as you stare at the moon, right? So he has entire, entire books where he goes through and talks about how nature in all of these varied and distinctive ways glorify God, right? And it's not just in the fact that they were created. It's not even just in the fact that they were miraculously created. It's that they, they tell the story. They tell the story of God and his people, right? Now, there are, there are branches of Protestant Christianity that are... That, that really emphasize when you talk about things like Genesis and you talk about nature and creation, they're really good at pointing out how God is the creator and this stuff didn't happen by chance. That's a great start, but it does not end there. It does not end there. The next step is to look at how nature glorifies God, not just in the fact that it's distinctly and wonderfully made, but how it tells the story. That's, that's the next step to get to. Right, so... And it's there. Whenever people are ready for it, the fathers wrote all about this stuff. So, and B, B didn't even understand that the moon doesn't shine. It reflects light. And actually reflects life that is reflected onto it from the earth. <laughs> so we've got the sun reflecting life off the abode of man onto this so it's, little light in the sky. It was even more true than even he realized. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is, what, this is how Psalm 19 even Yes. Um, and he asked there you go. In verse 1, there it talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God and the sky above proclaiming his handiwork. Yeah. My understanding of the language there is that it really almost, because the songs are meant to be sung, it almost proclaims that mm. all of creation actually sings out the glory of God. It's yeah. sighing out God's glory. So, just to make to add to your point. I'm all for using nature to, to point out that there's a creator. I'm all for that. I'm not saying discount that by any means, but for those of us who already know there's a creator, nature still has things to tell us. That's my point. Yeah. Well, you can, yeah. point, you can point out to the atheists, and I've done it before, uh, that everything operates by instinct except human beings, and that should get an atheist's attention. And when they deny the metaphysical, you can point out the universe, which is a physical thing, that stretches out at infinite, and you can tell them the word metaphysical means beyond the physical, and ask them to explain that. Again, I'm not discounting that at all. I'm all for that because it, you it, want, yeah, you want yeah. to get their attention. Ultimately, they've got to get in the word, yeah. and you want to get a message to them that you'll never know the answer to this for yourself until you get in that Bible and don't read little piddly parts, study, and then you'll know. You know this sort of thing, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I've yeah. told this story before about nature, but this friend of some of you know this. Anyway, uh, he was not a Christian, although he knew the gospel. Anyway, he was out uh, glorying in a beautiful sunset someplace, and he wanted to give thanks, but there was nobody to give thanks to. Yeah. So he converted to the There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're without excuse in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Because God's creation basically is telling you the story. Do you see that by us talking about nature in this way and talking about symbols like the cross that just sort of spontaneously show up in all cultures. This is the same thing. Do you see this? The this, same thing as what? This is all nations and all peoples have this story pregnant in their subconscious. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
And so, in all of these cultures, you have the cross kind of just show up. Well, in all of these cultures, you have the story and the drama of nature, right? Well, and God so they build eternity in the heart. There you go, right? So they, they build these mythologies around nature because they understand that it's a story. It's not that they're. It's not that the ancient cultures and these ancient the Norse and the Egyptians and all of that they were not trying to explain natural phenomena. They weren't trying to figure out where lightning came from. They understood that it was a story, so they told a story around it, right? Well, here's the story. Yeah, this here's the story. story. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah. From an anthropological yeah. standpoint, every culture known to man has had some uh, longing for a deity of some kind, some representation yeah. of, of God. I, I'm working with a, a young man who's involved in AA, and I've been looking about the history and what makes AA one of the better programs is its reference to a higher power. And so the people who really get into that and recognize the higher power aspect and recognize it as God Almighty, those guys, it's off the charts how much better they do yeah. in recovery. It's because we have that innate uh, sense of longing for, for God, a relationship with God. Yeah. And it's, it's been through every culture Known, there's not a culture that has not had a, had some form of deity, but uh, I just find it just so amazing that creation. I mean, that's what I try to explain to this guy. Hey, look, yeah. you look. There, there's no way we can conceptualize. I think of Job when God says, "Where were you when I suspended the heavens and the earth?" Uh, yeah. 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 Even, even the representation of uh, of the animals. Ask Leviathan. Ask Behemoth, you know, the donkey, the you know, how, yeah. so, so these things are just, oh, yeah, picking up what you're putting down, brother. <laughs> What's well, funny, you should even mention, a simpleton like me. It's uh, oh, we're all simpletons. It's funny you should mention Leviathan because Leviathan's going to come up very soon, not in this chapter, it's going to be at the start of uh, 27. Walton's going to teach us about Leviathan next week, all right, so. Where did we leave off? Yeah, I think you did 11. Oh, he does not see the majesty of the Lord. Oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. We're going to talk about fire today in church. Uh, o Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. You have indeed done all of our works. All of our righteousness, all of our great things that we have done, this was, this was you, God, you did it. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. This is what we just talked about. We literally just talked about this. All of the gods from all over the world, all these placeholders, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're going to talk about the real God. Mm -hmm. yeah. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of their land. So at this point, I don't have a whole lot of things to say about these verses, so I'll just read these, and then if anybody has anything at the end of this section, we can talk about it. Um, o oh Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Let me read to you the Septuagint version of this verse. O oh Lord, I remembered you in my hard circumstances. Your chastening was to us a small affliction. Paul actually references this verse, the Septuagint version of this verse, in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pains when she's near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we've given birth to wind. This is exactly what we were just talking about, right? The world is, is, is pregnant with this stuff, but all it can give birth to is wind and vanity. It takes God to step in yes. and give substance to this stuff, mm. to take the cross and make it His, right? 
We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. So we've contrasted now Yahweh with the gods, the old pagan gods of the world. They're dead, they will not arise. God's people, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. There's a, we don't really think about this now in our modern way of seeing the world, but when you talk about, as we've been saying, the natural world being pregnant with the meaning of the story, there's a connection between dew and resurrection. So, the, the most obvious example that we can easily access is the, the manna from heaven that God just sort of mysteriously gives. And it says that it's like dew. It's like the dew of the earth. Right? Yeah. I think it's Psalm 16 when it talks about you will not allow your hollow ones to undergo decay. I think it also says you have the dew of your youth or something. Yeah. Like that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there, there's other references too. Uh, there's a psalm that says... Um, the, the unity of God's people is like dew on the land. And then it says, for there the Lord bestows everlasting life. So there's this connection here between dew and resurrection or everlasting life. Um, in, in Egyptian mythology, and I bring this up because this would have been in the Israelites' mind. They would have seen the world this way, right? Because they just came from Egypt, right? At the time when God gives manna from heaven, they had just come from Egypt, right? And do in Egyptian mythology was a thing of resurrection. Well, it's it, you know, when, when I, I've done a study on that on Psalm one thirty three, and uh, the, the, the dew that comes that falls on the earth in the morning. If we if that did not exist, the world would be barren. There would be no grass. Well, especially I mean, it. Israel is not famous for its rainfall. So dew is pretty important. I do, I know. It's, yeah. it's life. But yeah, so yeah. It's miraculous life. Yeah. So what's good? Where the heck does it come from? There are lots of references to dew in Scripture. I'd like to read one. Yeah, go ahead. Read. Go ahead. This is a song of Moses. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak and hear a word the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, as the showers upon the grass. His doctrine is falling. It's like the word of God. Saturated. It's the word of God falling yes. on the land. It's the yes. um, it's the relationship between um, head and body, you know, mm-hmm. heaven watering the earth. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's the giving of life because it's from the dew, especially in a place where there's not much rainfall. Then plants are nourished and they come yeah. up. So there you have life. It's this is the story that's being told through nature. This is exactly what we're talking about. The process of the distillation, that's very pure water. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's drinkable water. Yeah. Well, and also this is fairly meaningless, but Moses understood that it formed through distillation. Yeah. 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 No. 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 Not at all. So, so my point here with bringing this up is that it's not arbitrary that when it's talking about the day of resurrection, it brings up dew. This is for the ancient mind. This would totally have made sense because that's how they saw the world. They understood that dew was something that tells this kind of story, right? So, your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. He's saying the same thing, just in different words. All right. Real quick, and we'll finish this chapter. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. Does that sound like anything familiar? (laughs) Holy Saturday is what Holy Saturday? Yeah, I thought it reminded me of Noah's Ark. Yes. Reminded me of Passover. Yeah, Passover. Which, by the way, involves manna. Yeah, it makes me think of Passover. Yeah, that, that was my first thought was Passover. Mm-hmm. Um, but also this being shut up in the ark. Yes. Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. So this is, this is as we've just shown, this is a motif that happens all throughout the scriptures. It's the hiding of the seed 
during the judgment, right, until the seed is literally all that's left. This was all the way back in chapter 1 of Isaiah was talking about this. We're going to burn it all down until all that's left is the seed, the holy seed. And the holy seed will contain the new creation. It's got all of new creation contained within it. Right? We're going to burn the old world down and only the seed, only what is in Christ. Only if you are hidden in Christ will you be in the new creation. Right? Because everything else is going to go. Everything else is going. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. Any final thoughts? I don't know. Go ahead. (laughs) I had noticed in verse 8 and 13 saying, Thy name. And I remember in Genesis, after Seth's son was born, it says, Then men began to call him the name of the Lord. And this is said a lot throughout the Bible. And I've often wondered, what's the big deal about the name in and of itself? But to me, it seems, um, to at least one aspect of that, that it's underscoring that God is a person. He's an individual person who would have a relationship. Absolutely. And so um, I like that. It just shows up throughout the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, In Middle Eastern culture, if you know somebody's name, then you own them. So there's also this he's willing to be, to make that connection. You know. It's a covenant. Yeah, it's a covenant by sharing his name. To me, he's not just some of this ethereal. You know, yeah. uh, all these cultures throughout history is like many gods, this sort of thing. He's a person. You know, hero history. Our God is one. That's why I think mm-hmm. in weddings it's a good idea when you're when you're putting two couples together is to use their full name. To you, like blank blank, take her, <coughs> blank blank blank, to be your long lived one. It's a, not a bad deal because it's it's that it's that sort of covenant coming together. Well, in the, in the olden days, that was the moment when she would take on his name. Her name would change at that yeah, point, yeah, is, right. my, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. still happens a little bit. It happens a little bit. Yeah, every now and then. Every now and then. Um, well, let's, I mean, we've got a couple minutes. Let's talk about the name of God. So, it's Yahweh. That's God's name. So, when it's talking about your name, it's talking about Yahweh. Um... So there are three types of letters, categories of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's consonants, which are written. There's vowels, which were not written until like the year 1000. For a long time in Hebrew, the vowels were not written. So you had this interplay between what's clearly written and ordered and what's sort of left ambiguous. All right. The vowels were called um, the mothers of reading. They were thought of as feminine, right? So you have this sort of, this drama of masculine and feminine in writing, right? Where the, the vowels were sort of like hidden help meets for the consonants. I know this sounds weird, but that's how they thought of it. This is how they thought of it. Um, was it the Maserites that added the vowel marks? They, um, it had already started and they, they codified it, they made it, they said this is going to be the standard going forward, yeah. It's not that they invented it, but they sort of, yeah. Okay, so um, there's a third category, a more ambiguous category, All right, and it's only a few letters. Um, and it happens to be the letters that make up the name Yahweh. <laughs> Alright, it is, it is a, it's a blend of the two. So you have letters that are written but are silent. You have um, you have words. You have letters that uh, behave in both sort of a masculine and feminine way, right? My point in saying this is that the form of the word for Yahweh matches completely what the name means. The name Yahweh means. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. It is both the known and the unknown. 
I am everything that you can understand, and I'm everything you can't understand. Uh, right? Yeah. And the form, the, the way it's written, communicates that. Yeah. Right? Even in the letters that, were, that God chose to make his name. Right? And so, get back to Middle Eastern culture, that Yahweh, to give his names to this people, and to say, here's my name, now you have a name to call me, that's such an act of grace, but they can't own him. Because the name, the name itself, it, you can't contain it. It's yeah, it, you can't contain a name like that. Regard, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I heard, I heard a preacher say that God says to His people, "All that you've ever needed me to be, I am." Yeah, there you go. That's why, that's why in uh, John, why those Pharisees and Sadducees hated Jesus so much when he used that term, yeah. "I am." Well, Abraham was, I am. I bet that was in the Jehovah's Witness Bible too. I bet it is. Yeah, I bet it is. There's, and not, there's nothing that yeah. they could be converted. They, they, well, that's why yeah. they wanted to stone him because they understood what that meant. Sure. They knew, they, I know. Yeah, they I know. knew that he yeah. was saying something so scandalous that, I mean, in their mind, he's got to go. They wouldn't yeah. pronounce the sacred name. They wouldn't pronounce it. They, they didn't want him no, dead no. because he was no. rebelling against Rome. They wanted him dead because he was claiming. Yeah, the really, really holy ones would uh, write one letter and then change pens just in case they sinned <laughs> while they were writing that letter. <laughs> Every time it came up, it's a, it's a. Be careful to be too holy. Don't be too holy. Jewish readers can read the Bible. That's exactly. a real. I mean, that's in Proverbs. Don't be too holy. Why would you ruin yourself? Why ruin yourself? Why worry about driving at thirty-one miles per hour when everybody else is driving forty? Yeah. Including the judge. The, the first Muslim I ever met, she was a student at Houston Baptist University, and she had she sat down at the table where I was sitting, and I had my Bible with me, but I had other school books put on top of my Bible. And she, the reason she sat down is because she was angry with me. She said we would never put the Koran always has to be on top of the stack. And he said if this Bible meant anything to you, you would always make sure it's on top of the stack. You're a real believer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, that's our relationship that we, we want to be friends because I was trying to explain to her a little bit of why, you know, I don't know whether we need to be getting into it so critically that, oh yeah, the Bible, i got to put it on top of the stack. <laughs> you know, so. Well, this is why Pentecost is good for us to celebrate, right? Amen. Because we get this stuff confused. And we think that the Trinity is that the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Word. That is not the Trinity. Yeah. The Bible is not... It's the word of God, but person. it's not the truth. Yeah. Even today in Israel, modern Hebrews, they won't pronounce the name of God. They call it Hashem, which is yeah, the true. name. It's the name. The name. The name. Yeah. Thank y'all. Let's stop Thank there. You.